Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. It's lovely to to see you here. If you're new here, it'd be great to meet you afterwards. My name's Phil. I am the associate minister here. Do keep Ephesians 2 open. Let's pray. And then we'll look at this glorious passage together. Our Father God, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts tonight, that we would see the glorious riches of your grace and your mercy. Would you soften us to hear hard truths that we might know more deeply the glorious riches of your salvation? Amen. Imagine a couple of lads, they're on their gap yard in Southeast Asia and... uh, Reggie and Bertie, they decide they want to take a boat trip over to this particular island. And uh, it's late one evening, it's an overnight trip. And so they chat to the harbour master and they say, we, we want to take this boat over to a particular island. And they oh, don't do that. Harbour master says, look, there is a big storm coming through. They're dangerous waters. And the only boat that goes across them, well, it's an unsafe boat. And you really don't want to trust the captain of that boat. Don't do it. Uh, but Reggie and Bertie have a discussion and they work out that given that they're both 18, they probably know an awful lot more than this guy. So they get into the boat, as you do when you're 18. We do. And uh, I can remember that far back just. And anyway, they, uh, they get on the boat. But Reggie is seriously seasick. He suffers terribly. And rather than feed the uh, dolphins for the whole journey, as they put it, he decides to take some industrial strength sleeping tablets. And, you know, sort of horse tranquilizer type things. So he takes these and he's out for the count. It's an overnight crossing anyway, so he'll just sleep well rather than be ill. A couple hours into the crossing, the boat starts to get uncomfortable for those who are not asleep. After another hour, it's not so much uncomfortable as just terrifying. Waves crashing over the boat, wind lashing it. They're in a really nasty tropical storm. Then the engine conks out, as they'd been warned might happen. Before they know it, uh, the skipper of the boat and the crew, have, uh, they've jumped into the only lifeboat there is and they've gone, left the passengers in this boat that's just sat there getting swamped by waves. Before they know it, both Reggie and Bertie are, are washed overboard like most other people as the ship begins to sink. 
And Reggie's still out for the count, just floating there. Bertie's just floundering around. And before he knows it, it's not just the waves on, above him which are terrifying. There are dark shapes moving in the water beneath them. And he knows it's, there are lots of sharks in this area. You know, this is just, this is terrifying. He's either going to be eaten alive or smashed to pieces by waves. And there's nothing he can do. But just as he's giving up hope, he sees a light approaching. And through the gloom and between the waves appears a lifeboat. And Reggie and Bertie are hauled on board by these brave lifeboatmen. And they're taken to, uh, to the island that they were traveling to. Now just as they arrive there, Reggie starts to come out of his, uh, his delightfully deep sleep. And wakes up and staggers onto the, onto the shore with Bertie. And as they leave the boat, they both shake the hands of the, the lifeboat skipper. You know, oh, thank you for getting it. Which of the two of them do you think is utterly overwhelmed with gratitude just to be alive? Which of the two of them do you think hugs that lifeboat skipper for all he's worth and offers to do anything for this man? Well, it's not the one who was asleep and has no idea what happened. It's the one who knows the danger he was in. The one who lived through it. The one who was very aware that he ought to be dead. He ought to be shark food. He is the one who is moved to tears of delight because he knows the danger he faced and therefore he knows the rescue he's had. And that is true for you and me as Christians if you trust in Christ here. At the heart of Christianity is rescue. Is rescue. That through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ we are rescued by God. And the deeper your understanding of what you've been rescued from, the richer your praise and gratitude towards God will be. The greater the power for a changed life will be. And the greater the motivation to tell other people about Jesus Christ will be. If you don't ever look at the dark, dangerous part of the gospel that tells you why you needed saving. If you avoid those uncomfortable truths, well, if we do that, we'll never be really moved to praise God. We'll never really be full of thankfulness to God. And we'll never see why it's just so urgent and so crucial that we do everything we can to tell other people about Jesus Christ. And so tonight, in particular in the first half of this passage, we're going to learn some deeply uncomfortable truths. It is not going to be good for our self-esteem. But they are truths. And they are crucial to your spiritual health. But also, they're crucial to your spiritual happiness. So let's look at the passage together. Uh, you'll see there's an outline um, on the back of your sheets and we're just going to work through Ephesians 2. Let's start at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Well, that's a bit strong. I mean, I might be tired. Yes, I live in London. I might be a year or two past my prime, the odd grey hair, one or two creaking limbs, but dead is just a little bit extreme. But Paul isn't speaking about physical death here. He says we're dead in our transgressions and sins. He's talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. Do you see from verse 2, in which you used to live. This is a, a death that you can live in, in your physical life. 
In other words, uh, he's saying that you, me, and the world, uh, everybody in this world, we're kind of like these flowers. They look rather lovely, don't they? Uh, I didn't pick them up on the way, don't worry. These are, these are left over from last week. They're great. Look at them. Picked on Wednesday and still alive. They're flourishing. Absolutely fine. They look beautiful. But of course they're not. They're dead. They just don't know it yet. They've been cut off from the roots which alone can provide them with life. And given a few days, they will be shriveled and they will be rotten. And according to the Bible, you and I are like that. Our sins, the the wrong stuff we do as we turn away from God. Our sins cut us off from God, who is the source of life. And like the flowers, we might look healthy, we might look like we're flourishing and alive, we're uh, building careers, we're pursuing relationships, we're running marathons, we're doing all sorts of things that shout, we're alive. But spiritually, we are dead. There is nothing in us that truly seeks after God. And so Paul then shows what this death, this spiritual death, looks like in people who are physically alive. Come back to the start of verse 2. Actually, we're beginning again at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and its thoughts. This is the unholy trinity of the world, the devil, and the flesh. He's describing uh, what life is like for the spiritually dead. And firstly, verse 2, he says, we follow the ways of the world. That is, we're shaped by the culture around us. We determine what's right and wrong, not by what the word of God says, but by what everybody around us thinks. Secondly, strikingly, to follow the morality of the culture, the spirit of the age, is to follow the devil, called in verse 2, the the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You see, we may not realize it, but when we turn away from God and pursue our own path, not only are we just conforming to our culture, but we're also serving the devil. Our freedom from God is slavery to his rule. And then finally, verse 3, we gratify the cravings of our flesh and follow its desires and thoughts. It's an incredibly perceptive description of sin when you think about it. I feel like I'm doing what I want. I gratify my cravings. But doing that also means I'm following. I am obeying my desires, unable to do anything different. So at a trivial level, I love pizza. I crave pizza. It's, I would frankly rather have a large, greasy Domino's extra pepperoni than a Michelin star meal. I'm just, it's just the way I'm wired. I just like pizza. And I enjoy it when I indulge that craving. So what? Who cares? It's only pizza. But the truth is that all of us also know that truth about some rather darker, more selfish desires. We can say no uh, sometimes to the temptation, but what we can't seem to change is that I just, I want these things. I can't seem to change the fact that I want to do things that I know are wrong, that I know are selfish, that I know are impure. We wish we didn't long for them. Sometimes we can resist them, but we cannot change the fact that we do long for them. 
Now, to say that we serve the world, the flesh, and the devil is uncomfortable. But if Paul stopped there, we might say he's, he's interesting, he's possibly a little bit traditional in his outlook on life, and, uh, but he has some valuable insights for us to think through. But what he says next goes way beyond uncomfortable and moves, frankly, into the realm of just offensive. The second half of verse 3, he says that because we follow the world, the devil, and our flesh... Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. God's wrath. This is not the, the violent outburst of, a, of a, a nasty drunk father who comes home and who knows what mood he'll be in and terrorizes the family as he flies off the handle. No, this is the calm, implacable hatred of evil comes from the heart of the one who loves only what is good. One who can hate evil without hypocrisy because he is pure and has never done anything wrong. And one who must hate evil because he is morally perfect himself. Now I want to spend a few minutes thinking about the wrath of God. Because even when we understand what it means in terms of we we get the grammar, we know what the words mean, I think we resist the implications. We want to ignore what Paul says. And in particular, we don't like what it says about us. And we don't like what it says about God's attitude to us. We don't like what it says about us and our fundamental nature. And we don't like what it says about God's attitude to us. So we don't like what it says about how God views us, his attitude to us. We hear the rest of verses 1 to 3 and and we can think, oh, sin is terrible. There's the world, the flesh and the devil and that, oh gosh, this is just awful. But thankfully, you know, there's God and us, we're on the same side and there's sin over there and it's this terrible thing. And thankfully, you know, God and and us, we're on the same team and and we'll, you know, with his help, we'll work it out together. But then we realize, no, that's not what it says. It says that by nature we were deserving of God's wrath. We're not on the same side as God. Innocent victims who've been oppressed by sin. Trying to find God's help. Now God is on the other side from us. And we're on the same side as sin. And he views us in our sin as deserving of wrath. That means that the greatest problem in your life this evening is not sin. The greatest problem in your life this evening is not sin. The greatest problem in your life and in my life this evening is that because of sin, we face the wrath of God. We don't like what it says about how God views us. That's a pretty uncomfortable truth. Secondly, we don't we don't want to accept that we're deserving of of wrath by nature. We we like to think that evil is outside of us. But Paul says here, no, 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 it's part of our nature that we are deserving of wrath. I'm not sure if you saw uh, the debates in the press this week about what needs to be taught to primary school children, whether they should be given any exams or too much homework or just learn through play. But I'll tell you one thing, you never need to teach primary school children in school. And that is how to sin. How to be selfish, how to lash out at others, how to exclude others, how to be cruel, how to lie. All of us are natural born A-star students in that. 
I have never, ever met anybody who has struggled with this doctrine that we have original sin, that we are by nature sinners. I have never, ever met anybody who struggles to believe that doctrine of original sin who also regularly helps in creche or Sunday school. If you've got a problem with it, do that for six months and then we'll have the conversation. Children are lovely, but just like you and me, by nature, they're sinners. But even if we get that sin is part of our, our nature, I think that we, if we're honest, we think that deserving of wrath is a bit of an overreaction. Yeah, sure, I'm not perfect. I sin. I get that. But the thing is, in a, in a room like this, most of, us, most of us would say, look, I've not done anything too heinously wrong. I sometimes get on the tube carriage before I've let people get off. <gasps> the greatest crime a Londoner can commit. I don't phone my parents as often as I should do. I drink a little bit too much on occasion. I laugh at jokes I shouldn't laugh at. I don't always, haven't managed to keep what the Bible says about sex perfectly. But does that really make me deserving of God's wrath? But here's the thing. If the history of the last hundred years teaches us anything, it is that any society and any individual, given the right or or rather the wrong circumstances and encouragement, is capable of pretty much anything. You see, deep down in our hearts, there is far more corruption than we dare to admit. And when the circumstances are right, it's terrifying what we're capable of doing. It's lovely having Duff uh, over here as a ministry trainee from Rwanda. And a couple of years ago, I got to, when I first met Duff, I was over teaching in Kigali at uh, Preach the Word, a Bible training school there. And before I went, um, the guy who ran it uh, sent me some reading. So look, get to know a bit about Rwanda. And in particular, he sent me a book that was about the 1994 genocide. Almost uh, around a million people killed in the space of about 100 days. An appalling atrocity. While the West sat back and did nothing. But what was most chilling in one sense, as you, as you read about it, was the identity of the killers. You see, an awful lot of the people who died weren't killed by the trained death squads. The almost military death squads. An awful lot of the people who died were just hacked to death by their neighbours. But when the government encourages it, when everybody else starts doing it, it's terrifying what ordinary people like you and me are capable of. But that is because our hearts are not as pure and perfect as we like to think. And that is why God says that by nature we're deserving of wrath. Christianity is the message of salvation. But salvation only makes sense if you understand what you've been saved from. And the Holy Spirit says to us tonight that the thing we're saved from, the danger that we all face, is the wrath of God. His just, implacable opposition and destructive judgment against all the wickedness, not just out there in the world, but also deep here in my heart. That is the storm that threatens to overwhelm each and every one of us. And in the light of that, it is extraordinary to read what comes next as we learn that God has made us alive with Christ. Verse 4, but... 
Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. It is one of the great turning moments of the Bible, but, but God, all was lost, all was hopeless, but God acted. Because, why? Well, because his heart is nothing like your heart or my heart. He is rich in love and mercy. And look at how the predicament of verses 1 to 3 is turned around. Those who are objects of wrath are now loved. Those who were uh, dead are brought to life. And those who are wallowing around in the sinful ways of this world are raised up and seated with Christ in heaven. As we've seen again and again in Ephesians, we have these things because by faith we're united to Christ, tied to him. I love it, verse 7, that he is, verse 6, he is seated in heaven already. And because he is there, we are with him. A few years back, we were camping in a typical British bank holiday weather. Sometimes the rain fell straight down rather than came sideways on the wind. Those were the nice moments. And our pitch was at the bottom of the field, which was fine for getting to the pitch in the car. But after another night of heavy rain, it wasn't quite so easy to get out of the field. But it's all right. Um, As I explained to my wife, I've driven our two-wheel drive car on plenty of campsites. I know exactly what I'm doing. Low revs, high gear. It's not actually that complicated if you know what you're doing. And so 10 minutes or so later, we're about 15 feet further back down the field uh, and rather deep in the mud. But but there was a man there who had a magnificent four-wheel drive. Uh, This was one of those proper African expedition four-wheel drives with a snorkel for river crossings, a massive winch on the front, and tires that could could tackle pretty much everything up to and including Everest. I think he lived in Fulham, uh, uh, (laughs) but but he lived for moments like this. Uh, And... uh, don't worry, it's, it's worth half a, half a mile to the litre for this day. When, and, and he sort of towed a succession of us out of the field. And he was secure at the top in this massive four-wheel drive, and he just passed down the winch line, tied it to our car, and just hauled us out. He was up there, we were down there. But the moment we were tied to him, we were all right, because he was in a massive four-by-four that nothing could move. Jesus is God, and he is securely seated in heaven and if you trust in him you are tied to him and he is just slowly winching you in and every day you wake up you're one day closer to the day when you join him there in glory in heaven that is the security we have as a christian jesus is already there enjoying the life and the light and the laughter of god and if we trust in him then we we get to join him but almost even better than that, than that perfect future, is the fact that these are all past tense things. It says God has made us alive with Christ. God has loved us. We have been seated already with him. By faith, these things are already true. The line is already attached, and we're already joined to Christ. There are some pretty dramatic before and after uh, things you can see if you um, if you look for before and after transformations on the internet. One of the most famous is dear Tom Cruise. I think we've got a picture of him. That's how he used it. That's quite a transformation. Uh, yeah, that is the same man. Um, I think 
I imagine that that's the only, that his dentist just has that poster outside. That's all he needs. <laughs> just, this is me. I did that. Uh, people come flocking in. Um, I, I particularly like the before and after illustration um, that this Jim had of, uh, of another Hollywood character, Shrek. Um, <laughs> if you don't get that one, you probably need to up your consumption of popular culture. Uh, but I think that's probably enough of that. Um, <laughs> but all transformations, all before and afters become trite and silly and cartoonish when you compare them with what has happened to you if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. It is a bit like a baby born to a crack-addicted mother and an abusive father who is adopted by wonderful, kind, loving parents. Friends of ours have done that and the life of that baby is utterly transformed it's extraordinary they have gone from a living hell to a wonderful wonderful life but it's not quite like that because that little baby deserved pity and when God rescued us from our predicament we deserved nothing but wrath there's nothing like what God has done for us there is no illustration If you trust in Jesus Christ, you have gone from dead in your sins to eternally alive. You've gone from wallowing in the misery of sin and the ways of this world to seated in glory with Jesus. You've gone from under God's wrath, facing eternal condemnation, to being greatly loved as one of God's own children. That is the before and after picture for every one of us here who trusts in Jesus Christ. And the final verses tell us why God did it. And they only add to how amazing it is. He did it because of his grace. Verse 7. God did these things in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. Why did God save us? Why did God save you? Why did he save me? Because he is rich in love and full of grace. That's who he is. That's what he is like. He did it just because he's generous. And verses 8 to 10, look at the flip side of that. Okay, if God is the one who saved us and did it because he's rich in grace, what part did I play? What credit can I take? None. That's the simple answer. None. We're saved by grace, which means God's kindness. The old acronym, it's cheesy, but it's absolutely true. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. We didn't pay a penny. We do nothing to earn God's salvation. He gives it to us by grace and we receive it by faith. As in, it's just given to us by trust in Jesus. And just in case we try to pat ourselves on the back, wasn't I wonderful for having faith in Jesus? No, 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 no. And that faith even is the gift of God, verse 8. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, the faith, is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now, we often get confused about this. And we don't always like it. So let me explain it this way. If you're a Christian believer tonight, let me ask you this question. Why do you enjoy God's grace and love rather than face his wrath? 
Why do you have spiritual life and an eternal inheritance? Why are you a Christian? Let me tell you four things that are wrong. It is not because you are more intelligent than most other people. And so you believe the truth about God while other people, they they just fell for the deceitful lies of people who deny Jesus Christ. It is not that you're more moral than other people. And so while they cling to their sin, you are just desperate to be uh, rid of of the selfish, wicked things that plague your life. It is not that you're more spiritual than other people. So while they're just happy living for this world, you craved a relationship with God and God rewarded you. It is not that you're more deserving because of your good life, as if God said, you know what, all of humanity, they fall short of the glory of God. All of humanity should face my wrath. But I'll tell you what, I'll save the top 25%. And you just happen to make the cut. No, to paraphrase verse 3, like the rest, every single one of us here was by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. So it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works. If you enjoy the love of God rather than living under the fear of his wrath, if you are spiritually alive rather than dead in your sins to the things of God, if your destiny is heavenly glory with Jesus Christ, then the reason for that and the only reason is because God in his mercy opened your eyes to to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all down to him. And so all the praise goes up to him. That's why we sing songs tonight praising Jesus for our salvation rather than praising me for being so clever to work out that that was true. Okay, how do we respond to this? Three very brief things as we close. Uh, Walk in God's works, trust in God's saviour, rejoice in God's love. Verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What an odd place to end the passage. Paul's just spent however many verses stressing, it's not because of the stuff you do that you're saved. You don't deserve it. And then he says, so do good stuff. What? He's not saying we earn it through good works. Actually, it's interesting. He's, his point is that the way we live demonstrates who we are. The way we live demonstrates who we are. You can't see it in our translations, but the same verb in verses 2 and 10 is used for living and doing. In other words, when you were spiritually dead, you did spiritually dead things. Now that you're spiritually alive, well, that ought to be apparent from the fact that you do spiritually alive kind of things. That's his point. And so it is worth asking ourselves, what does my life say about my salvation? I wonder, what does your, what does my attitude to sin say? Does it show that I I see now that sin brings misery and death and the wrath of God? What about the way you treat people who hurt you? What about willingness to tell others about Jesus? The way I spend my time, my money, conduct my relationships. What do those things reveal? 
Those who are spiritually alive should do spiritually alive things. Walk in God's ways. Secondly, very briefly, trust in God's saviour. Let me just say, don't walk out of here facing the wrath of God. You don't need to. If you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, your sins are forgiven. And you walk out of here knowing God's love and eternally free from his wrath. Trust in God's saviour. You can do it tonight. Thirdly, rejoice in God's love. Paul wrote about the wrath of God so that you and I would rejoice in the love of God. We think about sin and the wrath of God not because we want to be somber and miserable, but because we want to be filled with joy as we reflect on what we've been saved from. I was reading about um, Private Shane Dixon, who was a soldier in the army, arrived in Helmand province in Afghanistan in 2011 and was shot within two weeks. He was shot with a high-velocity round that struck him in the helmet. And the helmet was designed only to cope with bits of shrapnel. It should have taken his head clean off. But in a million-to-one chance... Uh, the round lodged in his helmet. The helmet was ruined, worth nothing afterwards. But Private Dixon asked if he could keep the bullet as a memento. It's an odd memento. But to him, every time he looks at that bullet, he is filled with thanksgiving that he is alive. As he looks at the thing which should have killed him, he is filled with joy that he lives. As you read about the wrath of God in Ephesians 2, as we confess our sins each week, and I hope as you do so daily before God, those things are like Private Dixon's bullet, a memento that reminds us of the death and the wrath that you and I should face. And Paul wrote these things so that as we look at the bullet of God's wrath, we would marvel that we who deserve that wrath have been shown his love, his mercy, and share in his life. Don't let the truths of that wash over you. Think on the love God has shown you in salvation. Discuss it with others here. Pray it into your soul tonight before you go home. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much that you tell us about your wrath, that you're honest about the reality of our hearts. But thank you that you do not tell us and then leave us condemned. You tell us about your wrath having provided us with a wonderful saviour. And so we pray as we, as we realise more and more how hell-deserving we are, that our hearts might be overjoyed to know the salvation that we have and the heaven that we are heading for. Amen.